0: The rain, uh, the storm, uh, this morning put me in mind of a Sunday. We were still at uh, Caerperavel, we were in the gym. Bob's laughing because he was there, many of you were. It rained so hard that even with the sound system you could not be heard inside the gym. So even though with the winds and the rains outside, not, not an issue this morning. Hey, glad we're here. We're in the series, Like a Tree. I hope you have a study sheet, by the way that like a tree, uh, comes from Psalm 1, this study in selected psalms in the book of Psalms. Let me uh, cue you to that for just a minute. If you have your Bibles, you can certainly look there or your app open. We'll start out here and then move on. Psalm 1, remember David said, blessed or happy or successful is the man who, some negatives here, he doesn't do some things. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers but instead in contrast to that he delights in the law of the Lord or we might say today the word of God and on his law in God's word he meditates day and night and then verse 3 tells us what the fruit of that is what avoiding the wicked and the negative the things opposed to God and what instead being planted in God and in his word It says he's like a tree. That's the title of the series. And he's not just a tree, but he's like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields fruit in its seasons. Its leaf doesn't wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So the whole book of Psalms that follows up this beginning is sort of a a look broadly at all the the various arenas of life. And what does knowing God in those arenas look like? And and what does avoiding evil look like? look like so i avoid evil i embrace god through his word and i'm like this tree now take that image and turn it around Uh, what happens if that same person in the imagery of a tree what if he's not by that stream what if he lacks water what does that person in the image of a tree look like it's no longer green and fruitful it's drooping it's dry The leaves crack and fall. The the vivid green colors turn yellow and brown. It looks less alive than dead. And what makes the person who would like to be like that well-watered tree look and feel instead like a slowly dying tree for lack of life-giving water? Now, you could have a number of answers on this, but the psalm we're in this morning has one specific answer. So so I say to the Lord, or I, I pray in the morning, or I say to myself, I, I want to be who God wants me to be, and, and I get that that means turning away from some things, saying no to some things, some temptations, embracing God, coming to know Him through His Word. I get that, and, but what might be at work in my life in which I say I'm not vital the way I should be, I'm not fruitful the way I would like to be? The psalm that we're in this morning, Psalm 32, lists one very specific issue, and it is unconfessed sin unconfessed sin. Not just sin, unconfessed sin. Sin that we hold on to, sin that we savor, sin that we hide in the dark with, sin that we might be ashamed of, sin that we don't want to face because to do so is painful. So this morning we're talking about sin, confession of sin to God, and then the forgiveness between us and God. And guys, we're talking about this... uh, not in a theme broadly. This isn't a, uh, it's not a message on on all the parameters of confession and forgiveness and repentance. That would be much bigger than the theme is this morning. So from Psalm 32, what we're really focusing on narrowly is our confession of sin to God, that specific vertical relationship, and then the forgiveness that we enjoy through God, from God, through Christ ultimately. There's a lot of things that we're not covering this morning. So if you say, Mike, you didn't quote these texts or you didn't cover these bases, I'm I'm aware of that, okay? So this is very narrow from Psalm 32. So Psalm 32 starts out with language very similar to Psalm 1. So it's this language about like a tree, but, but then it's not the tree that's vital and healthy. And it doesn't say tree in Psalm 32, but it describes somebody who lacks the vitality of life. In the Hebrew, it's the sense that they've dried up. they've lost their their bodily zeal and fluid and energy and so they're not like the tree of psalm 1 they're like a tree slowly dying psalm 32 is called a penitential song because david's talking about sorrow for sin and confession for sin it's also a bit of a song of thanksgiving because you get this great sense of joy in fact it closes on this appeal this exhortation to shout to god in praise which i hope we'll do after the message Some think this song is is tied to Psalm 51, so Psalm 51 is David's great great uh, hymn of confession. You remember the issue with adultery and immorality and then murder, and there's there's nothing necessarily in the song that tells us it's tied to that, but sin and confession of sin is the topic. And guys, when I said that this morning, did anyone in here just get a little cringe? Just a little cringe? Uh, Sin... Or confessing sin can be a really uncomfortable topic because it sort of strikes at the core of who we are when I was a young Christian came to faith I was 19 guys I was a very immoral guy I drugs and sex and rock and roll and all that that was that was my life absolutely my life came to faith in Christ and there was, I've said this many times, but there was this gap between I know I'm saved because I know who Jesus is. I've heard the gospel, I believed it. But this uh, process of sanctification, Mike's life, it, it took a. I was retarded, okay? I was not only slow, but I, I wasn't coming along. I knew, I knew there were elements in my life that weren't supposed to be there. I knew that. I wasn't, you know, not stupid and entirely. I knew that. But what was happening was I was going through a transition where I had an old lifestyle. And I was used to it. And those were all my old friends, too. And and there was pleasure in that. There was fellowship in that. Now I'm a Christian. And and for me, it was this very slow process of of one thing was being traded for another. But this is the point I'm going to. So I'm a new Christian. And I'm in these prayer meetings. And you know, while I'm sitting there in those prayer meetings, you, you know the one thing that I hope doesn't happen? I'm afraid I'm sitting there in these prayer meetings because I'm afraid God's going to point out my sin in the midst of that prayer meeting. And so I'm sort of, I'm just wanting to shrink down in that chair. You know, I want to be there, right? I I want to be there because there's life, the Lord's present, I'm learning and I'm growing. But also there's just stuff in my life that's not right. I get that. And so there's this fear. So I say all this this morning to say this, take a deep breath, hold it, let it out. So what you'll find is on this issue of forgiveness and confession is that God relieves us of shame. God relieves us of fear through confession and forgiveness. It's not something that he's heaping on, he's actually relieving us of a burden, relieving us of a weight on our shoulders. So uh, I'm not gonna point anybody out this morning and, and we'll all those, those sins that we know about this morning as we talk through, we'll give those to the Lord and we'll happily receive forgiveness. So if it sounds threatening, Relax. Uh, I'm going to read from the ESV, and if you use a pew Bible, that's page 462. The heading on this song is, it's a maskill of David. Maskell probably means something along, it's a skillful song, it's a, it's a wisdom song. He's going to give us some key instruction, and the instruction is going to be about confession and forgiveness. So we'll take this in blocks so we can cover the big rocks again this morning. Verses one and two David starts with this general truth about our experience when we confess and receive forgiveness. So Psalm 32 verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Those are great two verses, but I want to expand those, okay? They use some different words for sin. This is Mike's version of an amplified, verses 1 and 2. Blessed or how happy, how, how joyous, how successful is the one whose transgression, transgression is rebellion, it's intentional premeditated sin, is forgiven, and forgiven there means the weight of guilt has been lifted off of me, the shame is totally removed whose sin is covered, whose sin is covered over, buried so deep it will never be seen again, never raised again. There's no resurrection to these sins or their accusations. Blessed, verse 2, or how happy and joyous is the man, the woman, the child, the person against whom the Lord, Yahweh, God's covenant personal name, counts no iniquity, no perversity, no fault at all. And in whose spirit there is no deceit, no treachery, no guile, nothing that's false. How happy, how blessed. So David starts by saying, man, there's joy, there's praise, there's a lightened sense of the load when I have sinned, and I know that, and I take that sin to God, and I confess it, and I'm forgiven. And this theme of forgiveness, guys, if we don't get this, you will never live free as a Christian, So everyone sins, and if we don't know that God forgives our sin, really forgives, then you tend to carry that. It's like a weight on your shoulders. So listen to, I've got several other verses that I want to read through, because if we don't get anything else this morning, this is what we want to get. When we confess our sin to God, God forgives us, and it's gone. And it's not an issue again, ever. So this is another Psalm of David, Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. So that's God's attitude towards us, this loyal, supporting, faithful love. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. As far as the east is from the west. Where does east and west meet? No matter where you stand, east is one direction, west is the other, right? This is like saying... God puts your sin in a place that doesn't exist. You can't get there if you look for it. No matter where you are, no matter where you stand, east and west are divided from you, and that's where God puts your sin. It's in a place that can never be found. You can never get it back. Confessed sin is forgiven. It's removed forever. This is Isaiah 118. And you know, the people Isaiah was writing to, guys, they, were, they were God's people, but they were blowing it in every direction. He says to that group, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, and they are, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, you're stained with your sin, they will become like wool. Uh, uh, Put this in your mind for just a minute. If I went to eat uh, ribs, smoked ribs, and I'm, I'm in a white tuxedo, and I don't have a napkin, Keith, go with me here. And I'm, I'm loving those ribs in my hand and I'm using my white tuxedo as my napkin. You know, somebody come up and look at me and like, what is wrong with that guy, right? He's got this nice white tuxedo and it's got all these greasy red and brown stains on it. Well, that's what, that's what the Lord is saying to the Jews and to us today. You guys should be white, but you got all these nasty stains on you. But he says this, you come to me, we'll sit down, and I'll remove that so that white tuxedo, it's a white tuxedo again. And there won't be the, the, the notion of a stain or a spot on it. It'll be white entirely. From Jeremiah 31, this, this is life under the new covenant that God promised to Israel, but which you and I live in the benefit of today. Verse 34, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now guys, can God forget anything? He can't forget anything, can he? He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's always known all things. He he never grows in his knowledge. He never forgets a thing. But the thought here is God knows what you and I've done, but he never brings it up again. It's as if he's forgotten it. So that if you would go back to God and you would say, hey, that sin I committed last week or last year, there's a sense in which God would say, I don't know what you're talking about. Because it's put out of mind, intentionally put out it's not brought up again. It's from Micah 7 verses 18 and 19. Who is God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance, for the benefit of his people. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. You know, God's a perfect judge and he'll judge sin perfectly as he did with Jesus on the cross and as he will in the lake of fire with those who are not enjoying him forever in heaven. And that justice will be perfect, but he delights in expressing his steadfast, loyal love. Judgment, Isaiah will later say, is God's strange work. He does it, he does it well, he does it perfectly, but it's not what he delights in like loyal love. What happens there? Well, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I'll forget the the distance, but guys, if you go to these trenches in the oceans, you know, they're miles deep. And it's as if God says, I took your sins. And I weighted them down and I threw them over one of those trenches in the oceans. It's so deep, there's no thought that you could ever get them back or that they'd ever be seen. I think it was Cory ten Boom that said, uh, God throws your sins in the sea. And then he puts a no fishing sign over the top of that. There's a boy that says, no fishing. They're gone. They're gone forever, as far away as they can be removed. Uh, Romans 4 verses 6 and 8 quote Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 as part of Paul's argument that we are forgiven and declared righteous in God's eyes through faith in Jesus and not through any righteousness that we provide. And just to digress for just a minute, when you're in Romans three and four specifically, it's about how does God, how does God make sinners right before him? Now remember God's holy, he's absolutely perfect and he cannot abide sin. So how do sinners like you and me, how can we ever stand In his eyes, as being all that we should be, nothing we shouldn't be. So the words used in the English are righteous or just or justified. They all come from the same Greek words. How does that happen? Well, it's through faith in Christ. So faith in Christ. We don't justify ourselves, but we are free because the forgiveness of our sins is so complete. This is mind-blowing that you can stand in the courts of heaven and God looks at you and sees no fault whatsoever. Nothing Perfect righteousness, perfect justice. 1 John 1, 9, hope well known, memory verse, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That when we've confessed our sins to God, we have the assurance of his word that we're forgiven, and not just forgiven, but that our conscience is cleansed. So when you read in the book of Hebrews written to people who knew about the law and bloody sacrifices, the writer there says, you know what? The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, could never cleanse your conscience, and you knew it. So so one sacrifice after another had to be made. But the point becomes, but when Jesus came along, he offered the one perfect sacrifice that can save you forever, totally dealt with sin once and for all. That's the thing, and that's what we have in Christ. We should go away. And guys, this is based on faith, okay? So if you say, I trusted Christ to save me, that's faith. But it's that same dynamic that brings home the joy of forgiveness. So I could say, well, I confess my sin, but I still feel guilty. And then I say, well, this is the thing. God has forgiven you, and that sin has been removed. So your feeling is a false feeling. It's not based on the truth. You have to say to yourself, based on the word of God, a God who cannot lie, God said if I would confess my sin, he would forgive me. I've confessed my sin, he's forgiven me, and no matter what my feelings tell me now, I choose to believe I'm forgiven, and I'm going to act forgiven. It's based on God and his word, not on our feelings in the moment. When we confess our sin, when we come before the Lord and say what we've done or failed to do, and confess means we're saying the same thing, right? Confession means I've done something wrong or I haven't done something right. Uh, It could be what I've thought. It could be what I've said, failed to do, failed to think, failed to say, right? It's omission or commission. It could be any of those things. But when I have brought that failure to God, and confessed it, God in His Word repeatedly says that sin is put away forever. I'm forgiven, and that thing is gone and buried forever. Now, let me ask you this. What if you say, okay, well, I, uh, let's say I uh, have outbursts of anger. Now, this is something I knew about as a young believer, and I read Galatians 5, and I realized that anger is not okay because it's an outburst of anger. That's a deed of the flesh. So I say, you know what? I, I had this outburst of anger this morning. I confessed it. And I'm forgiven, oh great, that's great. And then went along in the day and three more times in the afternoon, I did the same thing. Now maybe I say this to myself, Uh, God forgave me before, but I keep doing the same thing. I can't count on him to forgive me now because I did the same sin again. And so uh, there's a tricky thing about uh, people talk about repentance and we wanna be careful about how we define terms. So here's a passage out of Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is a great passage chapter on the issue of forgiveness. And and Jesus has told a story about a king, and and there's a guy who owes him a lot of money, more than he could ever pay. He forgives him. That guy goes and throttles another guy that owes him a little bit of money and and is brought before the king. And out of that story, Peter brings up to the Lord. He says, hey, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? So Pete says, Lord, I get you. I hear it. You want me to forgive. Somebody comes to me, I've got to forgive them. And okay, I'll be generous. So if they sin against me seven times, is that enough? And Jesus says, nope, seven times isn't enough. Well, how many? Well, 77 times. So what's the point? As often as someone comes to you and asks for forgiveness, you forgive. Do you think God's any less good about forgiveness than what he's required of you and me? So that sometimes we say, well, I'm stuck in this sin, and guys, lots of us are, and Christians get stuck in sins, absolutely. And so we want to know that every time I come to God with that sin, and I'm saying, Lord, I have blown it again. And that can be really frustrating. We can be upset with ourselves. We can feel like, why bother? I'm never going to get out of this hole. Every time we bring that sin to God, that same sin, here it is again, and confess it, Lord, I blew it again, we're forgiven. And we need to choose to take God at his word to get up and go on, that's behind me, it's behind me again. And if it's 77 times I can count on God to say, that's dealt with, it's behind you, you can get up and go on again. When we confess our sin to God, he forgives and he forgives again and again and again. And friends, if this sounds too easy, you say, Mike, so you're just saying you just sinned and, and all you did was you just went to God and you, you said, God, I blew it again and, and uh, God forgave you and you think you're okay now? Like, that's enough? And I say, well, it is enough because God said it's enough. But guys, this is the thing. Your forgiveness and mine, it wasn't easy. It's easy for us at one level, isn't it? We confess. But why was it our forgiveness was not easy? Because it was costly, right? So Hebrews, again, this is out of Hebrews 9, verse 26. Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Was forgiveness easy on God's part? Was forgiveness easy on Jesus' part? That's the deal. You and I can't get forgiveness on our own. We cannot do anything to get it. We are in the hole. We can't pay our way out. We can't work our way out. So the forgiveness we have is easy in that sense that we confess and it's forgiven, but it was costly. It cost God the Father, the Son. It cost Jesus his life, his suffering, his death on the cross for God to say readily to you and I every time we come, Lord, we blew it again. And he says, I forgive you. It's based on the sufficiency of Christ and his sacrifice, not on us. So it was hugely costly. So David says there's this great joy, there's this great relief when I confess my sin to God and I go away forgiven. Look at verses 3 and 4. He looks back now before he received that forgiveness, and he says, When I kept silent, so I had sinned, and I knew it, but I hadn't gone to God with that sin. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up by the heat of summer. So this is David's description of what life felt like when there was this known sin issue that he hadn't dealt with before God. You remember in Psalm 30, we looked at just last week, David had a physical sickness, a physical malady. He made that clear God needed to heal him physically. Psalm 32 doesn't tell us that he had a physical malady we don't know that he just describes the symptoms of what he felt when he was carrying that unconfessed sin he says my bones wasted away so you know your bones give you structure they're the strength that holds everything up sort of and together and he says it's as if all the strength within my being sort of fell apart. And even if you saw me and I'm standing vertically inside, I just feel like I can't even stand up. I don't have inner strength to even stand up. He says, I was so sin sick emotionally and spiritually, I was groaning. Have you guys ever felt so bad that it may not be audible, but that inside you just feel so miserable, you feel like you're moaning and groaning inside? That's what David said he felt. Lack of spiritual... Vigor or vitality. He's groaning inside. He said, God's conviction was like a weight he couldn't get out from under. That this, and we would call this conviction. That he says, God's hand was on me. (laughs) You guys know in some of the parenting uh, training, junior wants to talk to mom or dad, they come up and they put their hand on them. It's like, Mom or dad, I need to talk to you about something. Well, this was God's hand on David. And he was squeezing his shoulder, so to speak. It was, David, we've got an issue we need to talk about. Your hand was heavy on me. Internally, I feel like I've got no strength, no energy, no vitality. God's hand is on me. There's this weight on me. In contrast to the vital, fruitful tree of Psalm 1, he was like a tree devoid of water and dried up. In fact, the the Hebrew here, the uh, dried up, it's like a tree that's lost all of its sap. The sap is gone. Alan Ross, in his commentary, describes it this way, unconfessed sin. Drains the energy and immobilizes the will to live life to the full. David's zest was not here. He was not motivated. He felt drained all the time. Basically, he was depressed, and it affected his physical energy and health. God was not allowing the psalmist to live life to the full when he was in rebellion against him, for it was God who gave him the full life to begin with. So I love that he brings up, it felt like this immense, significant depression. And I want to be quick to say there are a multitude of reasons why a person can feel depressed. So if you're sick physically, especially for a long time, you can just feel like I've got nothing. You can feel like mentally, emotionally, I'm drained, I'm depressed, I have nothing, I've been sick so long, I lack physical health, that's one thing you might be emotionally drained if you've been in a chronic trying situations that have required a lot from you you may feel like i've got nothing left there have been periods in my life where i've worked so many hours so long i just realize i'm falling apart i've got nothing left that's another, that's another issue that's not a lack of confession issue some of us are more prone just to feeling depressed than other people you say, well, there's nothing particular going on in my life, but I just feel down and out. So there's, if I feel depressed, it's not necessarily an unconfessed sin issue, but it might be. If we find ourselves in a stage of life where David's experience sounds like ours, it, it bears at least asking, Lord, Lord, is there something between you and me that I need to make right? Do I need to talk to you about something, confess something to you? Is this you at work to bring about confession? So David's misery moved him to confession. Look at verse 5. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. So that's confession. I acknowledged it. I did not cover my iniquity. He didn't try and cover it up. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David says, I confessed, you forgave. David was brought to confession through that suffering. He says, I acknowledged my sin. I quit trying to cover it up. I confessed to the Lord. I told God what I'd done. Friends, sin is always against God. Even if you go to Psalm 51, when David is guilty of immorality and murder, and yet he says, Lord, I've sinned against you only have I sinned. In this sense, in this narrow sense, sin is always and only about violating god and god's things it's vertical that's why i say we're talking narrowly about forgiveness out of psalm 32 because this is entirely a vertical look it's not talking about the things with people around me it's that before god i have sinned sin is always against god so following the law david would have taken an offering for sin to the priest who would represent him to the lord but the confession was made to the lord and not to the priest you know, raised Roman Catholic, um, you were supposed to go to the priest. You confessed your sin to the priest. Without confession to the priest, you had no absolution from sin. you die in your sins if you didn't confess to that priest. That's not what Scripture teaches, Old Testament or New Testament. We'll talk about this here in just a second from Leviticus. Uh, So let me ask you, when's a good time to confess your sin or mine? When's a good time to confess? Like right now. So any place And any time is a great time to confess our sins. Now, it's certainly nice if we have a moment where perhaps we're alone, there's nothing else going on, and I can just focus just between the Lord and myself and confess that to the Lord. That's ideal. But guys, any time and any place is a good time to confess. What keeps us from readily confessing our sins? What, what, uh, What prevents us from enjoying having this, load lifted. I'll suggest a few things, and you might have some others. The first is this. You know, we sin because we get pleasure from sin. There's a payoff or we wouldn't do it. There's a payoff. So sometimes we don't confess sin because we have a love for sin. James 4, 1 through 10 is this great, it sounds like an Old Testament passage in the New Testament. But he says, guys, you need to weep and howl and lament over your sin. You need to have a different attitude. You, you, you can't entertain that affection for your sin. You got to hate God's sin the way God hates that sin. So sometimes we say, well, I'm not confessing because I'm actually doing what I want. I'm getting something out of this. And that's why I'm not confessing that sin. Sometimes there's a sense of shame. Uh, I love the story in John 8, of the woman caught in adultery, and just put yourself in her shoes for just a second. This woman is, is caught in the act of adultery. No question. And this was a setup, which we won't go into the passage itself, but this was clearly a setup. And she's drug out of that setting, drug up in front of all these people. And maybe she's just holding a sheet around her. You get the the light of day. I'm I'm sinning in the dark and suddenly I'm in the light of day. I'm in front of all these people and they brought me before the rabbi, right? This is intentional shaming her and it's to put Jesus in a bind, right? So Sometimes we feel so ashamed about our sin, like that woman, I've just been outed, or or I haven't been outed, I'm afraid I will be. We feel such shame over the sin that we don't confess it, not realizing that the confession lifts the shame. That when we confess, and we take God at His word, we need to understand that the shame is gone because it's been covered in Christ's blood, out of Hebrews again. But sometimes we feel so ashamed of our sin, we don't confess it for that reason. Here's another one. And don't be offended at the verse I use to show this point. Sometimes it's just spiritual sloth and dullness. Dullness. Spiritual dullness. Proverbs 30 verse 20 says, the adulterous woman. So the adulterous woman. the, The picture here. Here's a woman whose life is characterized by adultery. Okay. So she's in the wrong place right off the bat. But it says she eats and she wipes her mouth and she says, have I done anything wrong? Like this is just, isn't this just life? Isn't this normal? I'm, she is so dull to her own sin that she's in another setting in life. She's just like, this is normal life. I'm, I'm okay and you're okay. And there's no sense of sensitivity to her sin or her state. No sin is worth holding on to unconfessed. Proverbs twenty eight thirteen says, If I conceal my sin, I won't prosper. I won't enjoy prosperity. If I confess and forsake my sin, I get compassion. I feel God's compassion. God joins me and helps me. Uh, What might this have looked like for David? I want to bring this home a little bit more so it it feels more personal or timely to us as well. Uh, Imagine yourself uh, David or just uh, somebody living in David's time. So. You're in David's time, and God's presence uh, is in that tent, in that sort of tented compound. And so you've sinned, and you know it. You realize, man, Lord, I've blown it. And so you know the law says, okay, well, you take this animal, maybe it's a pigeon, or it's a a lamb, or it's a goat, or it's a calf, and you're going to take that animal, and you're going to go to the tabernacle. And uh, this is Leviticus 5, verses 5 and 6. And in Leviticus, it's clear the person, the sinner put their hands on that animal and they slew the animal and they confessed their sin, okay? So they went. They confessed their sin, the animal died in their place, a representation that ultimately Christ, the Lamb of God, would die for their sins, the sins of the world. So that's what they did. They, they went to the tabernacle, they confessed their sin, the, and the animal was their temporary substitute, if you will. What would you see when you got there? So imagine there's David, he goes there. What does he see? He would see other people doing the same thing, wouldn't he? Because you're in a community, a pretty big community. So what would David see? You know what? He'd get in line, wouldn't he? Because there'd be other sinners doing the same thing David's doing. They'd sin. They know I've got to take an animal to the Lord. I've got to confess my sin and slay it. So David would find himself in a line of sinners going to confess his sin to be forgiven. But you know what, there would be other people in that same line, or maybe, maybe they had two lines, I don't know what this looked like. But the same place, going before the same God with an animal that looked just like the people, that the animals David was bringing. What were they doing there? Well, maybe they were offering peace offerings. They were so thankful for God. Or fellowship offerings, as they said, Lord, we just wanna hang out with you today. And so they would go to the same place with the same animals doing the same thing to worship God. So hopefully this is starting, a picture starting to dawn. You got a sinner among sinners. And so one day I'm going to the tabernacle and I'm bringing an animal because I'm a sinner and I need to be forgiven, I'm confessing. And you know what, another day I'm coming in the same place to the same God in the same line and I'm a worshiper. You got sinners and saints going to the same God in the same place. One day I'm confessing my sin and the other day I'm worshiping does this sound like the church to you because it sure does to me that when we you you can't see this in isolation david was in his little castle room and he confessed no because he's faithful to the law so he went to the tabernacle he would have offered a sacrifice just like the other people who had sinned and just like the other worshipers so guys we christians it's a trite saying that i'm not perfect i'm only forgiven but i'm forgiven is a big deal And we Christians, we sin. And so we get it. You know, Lord, sometimes I'm coming before you as a worshiper. And what am I bringing as my offering? Well, I'm bringing the sufficiency of Christ. And other days I come to you and I'm a sinner. And what am I bringing before you? The sufficiency of Christ. So we we need to get it. This wasn't in isolation. This was a way of life for David and for Israel. It's a way of life for you and me today. It's based on Christ. It's not us. We all sin and we all need to confess. So David was brought to the point of confession and God forgave him. Verse 6 and 7 is when the lesson begins. So he turns around and he says, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. David's exhorting others to go to God in confession when they realize they've sinned. And he compares holding on to our sin, unconfessed, like someone striving against a raging river. And, and at least the, the thought, the, the imagery here is not entirely clear, but it probably at least includes this thought. The longer we hold on to sin unconfessed, the harder it is, and the more we suffer. It's not that God hides or that he's reluctant to forgive us. His attitude is unchanging. But it's that for us, the longer I'm aware of that sin and I hold on to it, I embrace it, to get to God, to bring that sin to God, it gets more difficult and the repercussions, they get broader, right? So if I hold on to a sin and God's refusing to bless me, that affects me. But that affects the people around me as well. The repercussions of the unconfessed sin, they bring their own fruit, if you will. It's an unhappy fruit but it's because I haven't taken that thing to God. David says, do it while God may be found or may be readily found. So we would say, confess your sin quickly. David's was a confession prodded by some form of suffering, and he encourages others and us not to wait for God's painful discipline, but to confess our sin as soon as we may be. Do it as soon as you can. Um good times to confess when we meet with the Lord in Scripture and prayer each day. That's a great time. You know, sometimes I sit down in the morning, I just start reading my Bible, but a lot of times I just start by praying. I'm just clearing my mind, Lord, what are the issues, what do I need to be aware of? And pretty routinely, some, some failure comes to mind, I need to confess that. On the way to home group or Sunday meetings, that's a great time to confess sin, isn't it? You know, one of the things about Coming into the meeting, if I've got unconfessed sin, I'm compromising my ability to enjoy the Lord, to worship the Lord, but also I'm, I'm not free to hear Him. I'm, 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 there's a sense of I'm hiding. Uh, when I know I've sinned, but I don't feel particularly bad about my sin, I've sinned and I enjoyed the sin, uh, I still need to make confession. L- let me say this too. I, depending on the teaching you've been under or heard in the past, repentance is a big word it it carries a lot of implications throughout the old and new testaments repentance and so uh, so let's say i've sinned and i know i've sinned and i don't feel bad about it guys this is what i do this is mike's practice lord i blew it and i don't feel bad about it because that's the truth right that's does god know that already god knows that already but i can say lord based on your word i know i've blown it I don't really feel sorry for it and I get that that's wrong too that my affections are off base they're off kilter my mind and so we say sometimes Lord I want to love what you love and I want to hate what you hate guys this is a process that our view towards our own sin is part of the process of sanctification so when you come to Christ and or maybe maybe if you're a kid growing up and you hit your sister and you make her cry, as a little boy and your parent says, you know, naughty, naughty, you know, and you're like, well, it doesn't feel naughty to me. It felt kind of good. <laughs> Does, but, you know, I've had this, I didn't hit my sisters, by the way, but, you know, I had a younger brother. I treated him so poorly when we were growing up. And you know what? It wasn't until I was in my 20s that I looked back and I had this pain I had repentance. I regretted the way I treated him. I regretted the things I said to him. But I wasn't able to feel that earlier because, because my mind and my spirit was being renewed by Scripture and the Spirit. And so that process of sanctification, I could see what I'd done in a way I couldn't see it before. So this is just to say this. If you've got to work up repentance... Like, i got to make myself feel bad. You don't have it. So say, Lord, I don't have it. Or say, I know I should feel differently, and I don't, and I get that that's wrong, and I ask you to give me your affections, give me your view of this thing. So don't let a lack of I don't feel bad enough keep you from confession. You can confess the failure, and you can confess the lack of having God's view of it at the same time. And God will, over time, our mind is renewed. And we'll see it differently in the future than we do in the moment. So having confessed and been forgiven, he says, God has become for him, this is verse 7, his hiding place. Verse 7, you're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. And listen, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? David sinned david confessed and now what does he says god do does he says god surrounds him with shouts of deliverance uh you know if uh if junior has been disobedient for a long time and uh so- suddenly junior gets it and mom and dad are there with junior uh they're dancing a jig this is the thought he gets it the, the lessons come home and and junior's buying into what we've been saying david describes this not just as a relief to himself He says that confession and forgiveness has brought shouts of deliverance from God himself. This is like Zephaniah chapter 2 or 3, that that God is uh, delighting over his children. He's like singing like a father does over his children. That's the thought here. God is delighted over the confession and the forgiveness and restoration of fellowship. In fact, he says he's become like a mighty warrior, again, thinking of Zephaniah who has defeated sin and its fruits. Verses 8 and 9, God speaking through David's text. He says, I will instruct you. Okay, so David's confessed. He's forgiven. He and the Lord are good. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Remember, this is related to confession and sin, forgiveness. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So in regard to sin, God says, I'm showing you how to deal with sin. Don't kick against conviction. Don't run away to pursue the thing that's killing you. Look to me. I'll help you. I'll show you. I'll give you a word or a nod, and I'll show you the way out of bondage. I'll lead you to that happy place of forgiveness again. This is being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. By the way, it's a good thing, right? The Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted Christ for salvation, you are individually a temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives inside you. The God of all the universe that spoke the heavens and the earth into the creation lives inside of you. And Scripture is clear that you can grieve that Holy Spirit, the presence of God. You can quench the Holy Spirit. And when you do, God's inside of you. And He's knocking on your door. And he's getting your attention. And he uses any and all manners of ways to do that. And that's his conviction to move us, just like he did David, to move us to confession for the sake of forgiveness. Here's a question for you. Would you rather be characterized as a stubborn donkey or a faithful child? Because that's the choice you and I are making. Am I like a stubborn donkey, senseless brute? Or am I like a faithful child? Because God says, just look to me. I'm here. I'll show you. I'll show you what to do. I'll keep it simple. The conclusion, verses 10 and 11, many are the sorrows of the wicked. The person cut off from God, the person that's not in relationship with God, not recognizing sinfulness, not confessing, not giving God his due, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord, trusts in the Lord here for forgiveness be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all, excuse me, you upright in heart. David concludes with this high call to praise because he's experienced, I was in sin, I came to God with my sin, I confessed it, and I'm forgiven, and the weight is gone. In the sense of all my strength being gone, it's gone, and I feel alive again, I feel vital again, I feel like that tree of Psalm 1 again, instead of this dry, sickly thing sitting out there in the desert. In the language of Psalm 30 from last week, David is saying he's traded God's anger for God's favor. He's left off his night of weeping. He's walking into a joyous or joy-filled day. There's no more sackcloth and mourning. There's dancing and gladness, rejoicing and shouts of joy. God is shouting over David with joy. David is shouting with shouts of joy. Confession has brought forgiveness and restoration with joy and freedom. And in that grace-inspired experience, David shouts for joy. Friends, many of us are unbridled. I remember we're... uh, How many here watched KU's final basketball game this last season? Yeah. So were were there any high fives where you guys were? Were Did anybody jump up and down? Did anybody slap backs or... Hands, right? Uh, I bet, bet it looked like shouts of joy, right? Uh, over that basketball game. What, what should that be, though? Just think of this for a second. If you know your sins are forgiven forever, that the God of the universe is your Father, your Savior, your friend, that He's with you, that you have nothing, thinking of Psalm 16, Resurrection Sunday, you have nothing but pleasures and joy forever waiting you, That sounds like a good reason to shout for joy. That's what what David's saying, right? Many of us are unbridled when we watch those sports teams, but we're not not so unbridled when we praise and worship. This probably ought to be turned around. Our forgiveness and the liberation of our souls is a far surpassing cause for shouts of joy and praise. I do want to bring this up before I close. Have we trusted Christ for forgiveness? And guys, this means if somebody asks you the $64,000 question, when you die, where are you going and why, if you say anything other than Jesus died for my sins or I'm trusting Jesus, I, I have no confidence that you're saved and going to heaven. I have no confidence that your sins are atoned for and covered. It's not you plus Jesus. It's not you plus good works. It's not you plus adequate anything. It's Christ. It's his sufficient sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, that God says, a God who cannot lie, predicates your forgiveness and mine on. It's Jesus, it's not us. We receive the gift in the hands of faith, period. If that's you, you have, you stand in the path and the way of life and forgiveness. If we're God's child by faith in Jesus, and I assume most of us are, are we keeping short accounts? And guys, sometimes just like David Your life, you're down because you're not keeping short accounts because we're holding on to those sins for one reason or another. And one of the lessons for us is keep short accounts. Man, as soon as that thing comes to mind, I realize I blew it. I got this pang. Confess that sin as quickly as you can. Get right with God. Before we stand for worship, and we will in just a moment, uh, let's just pause. And just ask the Lord, just if there's anything between you and the Lord now, between me and the Lord, let's give that to the Lord in confession and know that we'll be forgiven. And then we can rise with shouts of joy. Father, we do readily and happily and fully give you the sins that would otherwise hold us back and dishonor you. And we thank you for the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus to adequately cover our sins and our shame. And we draw water from the fountains of life with joy this morning in Jesus. Amen. Worship team want to come up. And guys, if this, if this reflects your heart, pray with me as they come up and we get ready to sing. This, uh, all of these each week are inspired from Psalm 32. Father, thank you for the ready forgiveness we enjoy in Christ. May our confessions be as often as our sins and as quick as our consciences and your spirits prompting. May our gladness and forgiveness overflow in shouts of joy and worship to you.